name is Zach Carrera. I am one of the pastors here at Restoration. Whether you are a member, if you are just someone who attends regularly here or visiting, welcome this third Advent Sunday. Uh, the, in the church calendar, this is the season of Advent. And if you've been with us or maybe you've missed the past couple weeks, just a friendly reminder that this season for Advent, we're calling this series Advent for the Brokenhearted. And we're going through Isaiah chapter 40. And the reason for that is because at a very high level, like at 20,000 feet, Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are mostly about God's judgment. But then in Isaiah chapter 40, we reach a turning point where from chapter 40 onward to chapter 66, the end of Isaiah is mostly about God's restoration of his people. So in the midst of this season, uh, in the midst of whatever the heartache, whatever brokenheartedness uh, that we are in, whether that's having to just live with the consequences of our decisions, the consequences of our sin, whether that's being sinned against, whether that's just living in a fallen world, uh, like Israel, who has living in the midst of all those similar things, judgment for, for their sin, but oppressed, going into exile, being ruled by a foreign power, dealing with the things that we deal with, such as death, uncertainty, sickness, providing for the family, aging parents. We're looking at this message in Isaiah where it's this turning point, with this message of comfort, this message of hope um, in the midst of the darkness. So we're going to continue going through Isaiah today. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40. I've said, um, but verses 9 to 11 today. So if you were, want to turn to that in your Bible, and if you are going to use the Pew Bible in front of you, it is page 599. If you don't have a Bible and you want to take that with you, we'd love for you to, to have that and keep reading and searching and asking questions, um, but that is for you. Again, uh, let me go ahead. I will read um, our verses for today and then jump in, um, but Isaiah 40, uh, verses 9 to 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, uh, thank you for your word that does not leave us in the wilderness and the darkness of uncertainty, uh, but sheds light that gives us hope and comfort um, that allows us to wait and to long uh, for your expectant return. May you uh, encourage us this morning, convict us if need be, exhort us to press on in whatever uh, heartache, brokenheartedness that we may be in this morning as we look to you uh, for hope. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. So one of my earliest memories as a kid is with my mom or with my grandparents. They would pick me up from, from pre-K or school. And I don't quite know exactly how it happened, but I must have had a moment where it clicked because one day when I was about four years old, I just came home to ask my mom, like point blank, why don't I have a dad? And I'm sure she was very like thrown off by that question. And to be honest, I don't remember what she said to that, but there was about three houses that I would play with, play in like on my street. They all had dads. Um, I had seen dads pick up their kids at school in daycare. 
Um, my mom's own dad, so my grandfather lived up the street with my grandmother. They were married and they lived in the same neighborhood. So I was like, wait a second, this is different. Like where, where is my dad? A year later, she was dating a guy. I don't know how many dates they went on or whatnot, but they came home one day and I don't have this memory, but they both swear by it that when I, when he came in the door, or like when I walked out of the room, I was like, dad, uh, which I'm sure was unexpected for both of them. Maybe added a little weirdness or pressure to the relationship. Um, thankfully, a year later, uh, they got married. And I was super excited because I finally had a dad that could lead me, that could be with me, that could guide me, that could play with me. I even got his last name, Carrera, which is why things like YouTube send me ads in Spanish sometimes because they're stereotyping my last name. But 20 years later, back in 2017, my parents got divorced. And I thought I finally had a dad uh, that I could be sure of. And to a certain extent, of course, I still do because he was with me for 20 years. He was with me for the formidable years, you know, formidable years of my life. Uh, but there's a strangeness, right? Because he's not my biological dad. Now he's married to someone else. Not to mention just the strange relationships with cousins, aunts, uncles that I had grown up with for 20 years. Went to weddings, went to funerals. How do I interact with them now? Are they still my cousins, even though we're not really related? Now we're even more distant uh, because we're not technically in the same family. So it's just strange. And the reason I bring that up is I think in the midst of our heartache, in the midst of our brokenheartedness, whatever it is for you this season in Advent, it might not be a particularly defining moment of loss, right? This loss of a dream for me, this loss of having a dad, having a family in the way that I imagined it or the way that maybe my friends did when I was little, I can't make that up, but it's kind of been a prolonged loss. And at the same time, it's not a marked physical loss like death that maybe we've been talking about the past couple weeks. So, so for some of you all in here during this advent, the heartache might be the loss of a friendship, the fallout of a marriage that's fallen apart, the loss of your health that you can't gain back, the loss of goals, dreams, failures, regrets, the loss of maybe closure with someone that you used to be really close to and you, haven't, you weren't able to mend or haven't been able to mend. And so in this season, I think the question that comes up uh, for me and the question that maybe come up for the Israelites as they're coming out of chapter 39, which is God's judgment, is that is comfort really possible? Is hope truly offered in the midst of our heartache? Whether that's, again, through fear, sickness, death, the unexpected uncertainties of life, food, provision, the Israelites were dealing with those same things two, 3,000 years ago in God's words of Isaiah. And in this passage today, we see that God actually does point them to a comfort that's offered and a hope that is truly there. And so this is the message of comfort and hope from God. And it's this, God himself has come to his people. Now, if you look a little bit above in verse five, Pastor John preached on that a couple weeks ago, in, the, in that verse, it says that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And it's kind of interesting, like what, what's the glory that's to be revealed? And what we see today in our passage that we're going to look at, the glory of the Lord that he promises to reveal is actually his very self. 
his divine presence that has come down to be with his people. And so we're going to look at this in two themes today. We're going to see how Yahweh has come, so we behold him, right? He says, behold your God. But then also, Yahweh has come, and we herald the good news. So this first point I want to emphasize, beholding our Lord. Yahweh has come, behold him. If you look at verse 9, you kind of see that there's this buildup of anticipation, right? It says, go up on the mountain, lift up your voices. Go up on the mountain, lift up your voices, herald the good news, say without fear. And there's this anticipation, like what am I heralding? What, am, what should I go up on the mountain to do? Am I heralding the good news from verses 1 to 5, where God has pardoned Jerusalem's sin, where war has ended? Am I heralding the good news of 6 through 8, where it says the word of the Lord stands forever? But then at the very end of verse 9, we see what it is. What's the good news that's being heralded? It's behold your God. See, the good news is that God has come down. And so in the next two verses, verses 10 to 11, it actually fleshes out what it is that we're beholding, or more importantly, who it is that we're beholding. So diving into that, beholding our God. It's hard to see in the English translations, but uh, the way that the Hebrew is constructed, there's this deepening personalness, personal reality to the God that's come down. So at the end of verse 9, when it says, behold your God, in Hebrew, that's behold Elohim, just the general word for God. And then in verse 10, when we see the, the Lord's name repeated there, it's at the front of the Hebrew sentence, and that's important in Hebrew. John said this, that if it's at the front, that it's emphasizing, it's not just anyone, right? It's this is who has come. So in the Hebrew of verse 10, it says, behold Adonai Yahweh. So there's this progression, behold your God, Elohim, behold Adonai, behold Yahweh has come. And then how does it describe him in those verses, right? For verse 10, it says, he comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward, his recompense is with him, right? There's this repetition of behold, look at who has come. And then lastly, verse 11, it said, he comes like a shepherd who will gather his flock, who will gather them up into his arms. He tends them. He carries them close to his bosom. He gently leads those who are with young. You want the commentator summarize it this way. In this passage, we see that the one who is mighty, who rules, is also the same one who shepherds. Or even better, the ruling arm is the same as the carrying arm of the shepherd. And it can be easy in these verses when you read it, you're like, oh, there's this one image of authority, power, kingship, maybe. And then there's this image of, oh, a shepherd is tender and caring and gentle. But if you were to just take note as you read, anytime the word shepherd comes up in scripture, it's both aspects. The shepherd is the authoritative power, the ruler who is able and powerful enough to protect the flock, and yet also tender and gentle enough to care for his flock. Now, for some of you today, as we uh, just think about our own heartache, our state of brokenness, um, this Advent season, it could be hard, right? We ha it's hard to imagine how can someone with power and rule and authority also be kind and gentle and just. Whether that's culturally, just our distrust for authority in this present moment, or I know for many of you personally have stories 
where you've been manipulated, exploited, or used by those who have power for their own gain. And I want to stand up here and acknowledge and say that that is not the way it's supposed to be. And God actually describes this in Jeremiah 23. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. This is what God says to people like that. He says, Woe to the shepherds that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. You scattered my flock. You've driven them away. You did not tend to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. I will gather the remnant of my flock from all the countries where I've driven them. I will bring them to the fold. They will be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, that they may fear no more, nor may they be dismayed, and neither will any be missing. See, God will act against those shepherds who have abused the power, but a true shepherd, the one that should be, the one that who God is, how he describes himself. A shepherd is one who provides security and peace because he has a mighty arm, a ruling arm that's able to protect, but also a carrying arm that holds you close, tends to you, gently leading you. Behold, this is your God. One other aspect about I think shepherding that comes through in these verses that we might not see in the English is this word at the end of verse 11 where it says gently leading. Now gently leading here in the same way that we say the word peace and the Hebrew word is shalom. You guys may have heard that and there's this meant to be this fuller picture of peace than what we can capture in the English. This word for gently leading in the Hebrew is a fuller picture than what we can translate in the English and it means to to lead somewhere of rest, or specifically to lead to a place of water, to lead to a way station, a stopping point. And so our shepherd here is the one who doesn't just lead us ambiguously, but he's leading us to a point. He's leading us to a hope, a rest, a watering place. You might think of the images of Psalm 23, right? Where the opening line is, the Lord is my shepherd. And how does it describe shepherd in that language, right? He is uh, the one that makes me lie down in green pastures. He's the one that leads me beside still waters. That's that same word, beside still, leading beside still waters. And here in this verse, gently leading, it's the same word. He restores our soul. More importantly, maybe for this Advent, as we're meditating on our heartache, our brokenheartedness, remember in Psalm 23, it says that the Lord is with me, that he walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death. See, our God, Yahweh, is our shepherd who enters into our heartache, into our sin, so that we would might have comfort and peace. To end this first point, I want to quote um, from Gentle and Lowly. Many of you in this congregation have probably heard of that book. Maybe you've read it. We highly recommend it if you haven't. Um, but Dane Ortland summarizes, I think, the character of our shepherd uh, that I'm trying to get at from these verses. And this is what Dane says. He says, Consider your own life. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like time is passing by, when it seems that your shot at significance has slipped through your fingers, when you can't sort out your emotions, when the longtime friend lets you down, when the family member betrays you, when you feel deeply misunderstood, when you're laughed at, in short, when the fallenness of this world closes in around you and makes you want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend and I would add a shepherd who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us and embraces us. 
Behold, this is your God. This leads then to the second point. If the first point was kind of responding and, you know, Yahweh has come and our first instinct, our, our first call is to behold him, which I hope has given this awe and wonder and love and worship towards him, is there anything else? And we kind of talked to this in the, the very first uh, verse, right? Verse 9. It calls us to herald the good news, right? He tells Jerusalem, Zion, it's the same city, just different names for the same city, to go up on the mountain and herald the good news. Now, what's really powerful about this verse is if we look at it in context of all of chapter 40. Because if you've been with us the past two weeks, when Pastor John preached on verses 1 to 5, notice that it's comfort, comfort my people Tell Jerusalem that the war has ended. Tell Jerusalem that your sins are pardoned, right? And then when Dan preached, it's a, that was one voice. There's a voice telling Jerusalem of the comfort for them. Then when Dan preached, it's another voice is crying out. The narrator saying, the word of the Lord stands forever. Presumably, he's still saying this to Jerusalem. But in our verses here, we have a third time that a voices are crying out. But notice the switch. It's not a voice that cries to Jerusalem comfort, but Jerusalem is called to go up on the mountain and herald the good news to the cities of Judah, right? The surrounding cities around Jerusalem. And the reason that's important, or what I'm trying to get at, is that in this season of heartache, in this advent of brokenheartedness, comfort, comfort my people, those first words in verse one, those are not just for yourself. These words are for all people. Comfort and joy is not meant to be kept secret, hidden, but it is to go out, to spread. I think of strength of our church um, that I hear a lot, that I know a lot of staff hear a lot uh, when we meet people who are coming in, is just that it's a church where community is there. And if you've been with us long enough, you may have heard us use this language of an embodied community. And our goal is to be an embodied community that pursues the restoration of peoples, communities, and cultures through the transforming power of the gospel. And the gospel is this, that we now can have a relationship with God because of what he's done on the cross. See, transformation comes through relationship. And in this Isaiah text, we see that God has come down to us to be with us, to shepherd us, to have that relationship. But getting at this point of having being embodied community, our relationship with the Lord is not the only relationship we have. All of us have relationships with people outside these walls, or we certainly hope that you do, right? And so being an embodied people, being an embodied church, remember the church is called the hands and feet of Jesus, the body of Christ. Ephesians 3 says that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. And so as we have relationships with people around us, we have the chance to, like Christ, embody this comfort and hope. Now, if it's someone who is a brother or sister in Christ, you have the chance to be with them and when it's appropriate, in the midst of their heartache, in the midst of their comfort, you can herald the good news of reminding them of the hope and comfort that is offered. But for others here, you, have, I, you probably have relationships just outside the body of Christ, whether it's through your neighbors, whether it's through work. And in the same way, you can herald the good news not 
reminding people of the hope and comfort when it's appropriate, but actually offering people the comfort and hope that we have this Advent season. It's exactly why we do things like cocoa cocktails and karaoke, where it might be a little bit easier and safer to invite people other than Christian to come into a space where they could see fun, joy, peace within the, uh, the people here. But more than that, it's why every time we give the benediction, we start it how? It says to go out as you go out to wherever God has called you, and then we give the benediction. Right? It's this going out of the good news of the gospel. It's why we have Jason as our church planting resident, right? Being trained as we look to discern to send people out to other parts of St. Louis to herald the good news of God come to us, of the comfort and hope that we have in our own sin and our own fallenness, that our shepherd has come, saved us from that, forgived us, given us freedom, and he promises to come again. As we shift kind of to a time of, of closing here, I want to highlight this one other phrase uh, from verse 9 that I think might be out of place, or it feels out of place when I first read it, because it says, lift up your voices, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. And I was kind of wondering, what is that fear? Are they fearing like being scared of saying the good news? And all the commentators, what was interesting is that it's this fear of doubt. It's did this really happen? Has God truly come? Is comfort really possible? Is hope truly offered to the people of God? I like what Francis Safer said, uh, which is he says, I'm more sure of God's existence than of my very own. And so I want you all to know that yes, God truly has come. He is real. He did make promises of comfort and hope. He offers that to each of you. He's shown that once through Christ coming the first, but he, even with more assurance now, that he will fulfill that promise of eternal hope and comfort by coming again. Oftentimes during this Advent season, we call Jesus, we refer to Jesus as Emmanuel, right? Which is literally God with us, which is a perfect name and really is what is being embodied in these verses here, but another name that Jesus referred to himself as in the Gospel of John is the Good Shepherd. And maybe you've already, excuse me, thought about that as I've been preaching here. But if you were to go to that, that Gospel, remember the famous line is, the Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And Jesus is describing how wolves come in to kill, to destroy, to scatter, but that he comes to gather his sheep and to lay down his life for it. Notice the both aspects that we've been getting at. He has the might and rule, the ability to lay down his life, right? The power to save his sheep, but he does it because he loves them. He cares for them. He gently leads them. He protects them. Our shepherd is one who has both rule and might, which gives us peace, but he's gentle and tender to the point of dying for his sheep so that we might be saved. For some of you here, I know for many of us, um, it could be hard, right, for these words to sink in. That's why we be reminded every Sunday. That's why we have things like the table. Uh, but that's also why Jesus came, right, to be the flesh and blood embodiment of the promises of God. 
But sometimes just because we have that comfort and hope, let's name the reality that for right now, it doesn't completely fix it, right? If you've lost someone dear to you, whether it's your own parents, whether it's your own child, whether it's a permanent health issue that you can't fix, a dream that truly cannot be pursued anymore, there is that reality. Our longing, our hope, our comfort is the promise of God's restoration of that brokenness. And to give an example of that, I just think back to the story of my dad. There's nothing I can do to get back the six years that I never had a dad growing up. There's also nothing I can do this moment to fix the fact that even though my parents were married for 20 years, that they're divorced. They've both remarried. There's nothing to fix the fact that between Annie and I and our, our parents' stories, we have like six different parents, strange relationships with people that we were close to and sometimes more distant now. But despite that, I'm grateful, and I hope that each of you all might have little moments and pockets of hope, because for me, it's the fact that I can be a dad now. And I can long for an eternal home. Or I will have a father. And uh, to close, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, he says this quote, per usual me, if I can read it. Um, this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering that no future bliss can make up for it. But not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you that, Lord, in whatever heartache we have, whatever broken life we've lived um, as we experience the fall, uh, we have this comfort and hope in the midst of that darkness that you have come to restore your flock, to bring them back, to carry them, to lead them, and you promise, Lord, to come back again for the renewal of all things, knowing that for all eternity, our good shepherd will watch over us, guide us, lead us, hold us, and that we would experience your peace um, in eternity. Thank you for your work, Lord. We pray this in your son's name.